Welcome to Pollinators and Power. I'm Terry Oxford, and I'm a pollinator advocate in San Francisco, California. Today, I'm interviewing Jeff Anderson, who runs thousands of hives between Minnesota and California. Jeff is part of a near five-generation family of beekeepers. He has fought the good fight as the pesticide industry gained control of our agricultural system. Never on the sidelines, Jeff has stepped up to protect his bees against the Bayer Boys, their friends in beekeeping, Bee Informed Partnership, and the EPA and other regulatory agencies. In this interview, Jeff recounts his years-long fight with the pesticide industry that operates within our food system and in our regulatory agencies. Jeff is smart, fun, funny, warm, outspoken, and a critic about the too common overuse of poisons in our agriculture, which kill pollinators and nature. Thanks for joining me, Jeff. So can we start off with your with your, your family history? Like you guys have been beekeepers for how many generations? Three? <laughs> yeah, if if we uh, count my grandkids when they come out to work with me, we are actually starting into the fifth generation of beekeeping. So we've been at it for a while. And you're in two different states, California and... And Minnesota, yes. We, we contract pollination primarily almonds in California in the spring and winter. And then we do honey production in Minnesota during the summer months. So just let me, let me ask, how's, how's it going? <laughs> Beekeeping is getting to be a significant challenge. Even the guys that are, are not having super high mortality uh, are still uh, being challenged. Our honey production's off. It's just hard to keep good, healthy hive of bees alive. And what do you attribute that to, mostly? Well, I almost 100% contributed to overuse of pesticides. Yeah, that's my experience, too. You know, the pesticide issue is not really talked about a lot amongst beekeepers at my level. But at your level, it's talked about all the time. You and uh, all the other major beekeepers have been trying to fight pesticide overusage for years now. How long? Like a decade? Oh, no, no. Way longer than that. Maybe the best way to get to that would be to respond back to your initial question about the family history. This business has gone down the son-in-law side of the family. And so my wife's grandfather, John Wells, was the person that originally started the business, bee business, and uh, it actually predates uh, World War II. He actually was drafted toward the end of the war and sold his bees uh, and everything, uh, getting ready to actually do, go into military service. And uh, the war quit just before he was actually called. So uh, after the war, he, he went through and he bought um, a lot of small hobbyist type bee operations and, and put himself, put his bee business back together. And at that time, uh, he was, they were located in Southern California up in the little town of Lake Hughes, up in the foothill or mount, low mountains just north of LA. Um, they uh, did primarily honey production. Uh, uh, they would go down into the orange. Uh, do orange uh, production down in Orange County, mm-hmm. which is, there's still oranges in Orange County, but, you know, there's a lot, mostly houses down there nowadays. Uh, they would do sage honey production. And then during the summer months, uh, 
they would do um, pollination certified seed alfalfa up and up in the Central Valley down around Bakersfield. And that's where uh, this bee operations uh, exposure to pesticide first happened, and that would be back in the late mid to late 50s. Mm -hmm. um, do you know what that pesticide was at that yeah, time? Yeah, I, I actually do because I <laughs> they were using uh, seven or carborol as the active ingredient, seven is a trade name uh, on alfalfa seed, and it was really, really hard on beehives. Yeah, and uh, so they uh, decided to quit doing pollination and go into 100% honey production, but they, they needed to get away from California in the summer months. And they did some scouting and, and actually ended up in Minnesota, which was pretty much pesticide free uh, for about 40 years. But the, the other twist to this, this issue with the carborol or the seven is that uh, we got into a fight for our existence here as a California, the as a bee business uh, over the same exact pesticide here in, in Minnesota. They started using it in Minnesota and seven is still used and it's still highly toxic to yep, uh, it's pollinators. Acutely, it's acutely toxic to pollinators. It's one of those things that the government gets into that uh, they decided, oh shoot, this was back before Clinton, I think even, might have been early in the Clinton administration. Like in the 90s? Yes, uh, about 2000, uh, 90, 97, 98. I think about 2000 was when they actually did this. They decided they were going to uh, go to alternative energy sources and do biomass fuel. And uh, depending on what part of the country you're in, uh, it might have been switchgrass or whatever. But in Minnesota, they decided to, to put in plant hybrid popular tree plantations and the problem is that there's a, a pest the cottonwood leaf beetle but the cottonwood leaf beetle is is a normal pest of the cottonwood or popular uh, tree plant trees but when they hybridize these things it's, it's like a lot of the things that we genetically modify they they were able to create a faster growing tree right. but but they they lost their pest resistance and so once they started planting these plantations, they, they would, uh, initially they were buying up land. And so kind of at the peak of the, their heyday here, they had about 27,000 acres of land in anywhere from two to three acre plots up to 640 acre plots, just helter skelter all the way uh, basically overlap my bee operation and uh, territory in Minnesota. And uh, uh, we were getting exposure to hundreds of applications of seven mm -hmm. uh, during the course of the summer. And just it was just cleaning our clock. So that was kind of when I first became an, a little bit of an activist on the, on the pesticide issue. But uh, it's been an ongoing thing for beekeepers around the country. You could, and, and it, and it kind of comes and goes. Um, you can look at uh, agricultural statistic numbers, the NAS numbers that uh, USDA collects, and you can see patterns of where um, bee populations drop off in specific states. 
and if and if you know the if you know the pesticide application practices at the time, you you would know that, for instance, uh, Colorado and Nebraska had a significant drop off in in colony counts, and it correlated exactly with the use of furidan and pencap on corn. And, and during my carborol fight up here uh, over the hybrid poplar trees. Um, Minnesota lost 100% of the U.S. bees for three years running. Wow. For three years? Well, let's go back to that again. Let's go back to the carbaryl to the seven. Seven is, uh, just to explain uh, what the problem is, it's, uh, it's a systemic, right, carbaryl? There's some chemicals, some of the pesticides break down relatively quickly in the environment, and some take a lot longer to, to break down. And the other part of that is some pesticides are extremely hot. They're, you know, they're very toxic to, to bees. Carborol 7 is, is pretty, is acutely toxic. Uh, it takes, I think, two, two micrograms to kill a bee. And, uh, but the other part of that, it depends on where you apply it in the environment. Um, if you apply uh, 7 to an alfalfa field, it's toxic for three or four days. Okay. It will kill bees for that long, and then it gets degraded to the point where it won't kill adult bees anymore. But you apply that on a tree plantation, and all, all of a sudden it jumps up to about 20, 21 days that it's toxic because the sunlight and, and whatnot is being shaded by the tree canopy. And so uh, what would create uh, a significant problem, you know, like if you, you got sprayed... Uh, on a row crop, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you put it in a tree plantation, you get a whole whole different scenario. It's it's much more toxic because it's toxic so much longer. Well, and I need to double check this, but I always thought seven was a systemic meaning that it's inside of the plant uh, and it persists there for a long time, and then the poison is dispensed in the in the nectar and the pollen. So, you know, when a, when a bee or a pollinator goes in and grabs some nectar or some uh, grams of, uh, of, of pollen, takes that home to the hive, then it's, it's toxic there too. So there's acute, there's a, an acute kill, which happens immediately, like on the alfalfa. Uh, and then there's the later kill, which they, it happens later in the hive and they don't really, you know, uh, have a reason for it. But it's the same thing, your bees are dead. What absolutely, because the other thing that we had is uh, our, our equipment, when we were being sprayed that heavily, our equipment actually got toxic. You could kill a hive of bees, uh, store the equipment in your warehouse, and then and then try and install uh, another hive of bees in it the following spring and, and promptly kill about half of the bees. Whoa, so it was in there. It was in the pollen, in the nectar, in in the hive oh yes my it actually gosh. it actually permeates uh in the bee equipment the, okay. the, bee, the as it degrades to the point where it's not acutely toxic to the field bees see they start bringing in pollen and nectar that has uh residues of this on there right. and and it gets stored in the colony and bees are like you and i you know if, if you got fresh peas in the garden you're going to go get the fresh peas but mm -hmm. Once you get into winter and whatever, you got to go get the canned peas. And so when, <laughs> when the bees go back in into the pollen, the stored pollen and nectar, uh, you get a uh, fresh flush of kill sometimes months after the exposure. Right. 
And I know what a kill looks like. It's uh, for me, what I've seen is bees writhing in front of the hive and they're often infant bees. There's no way that those young babies have even been to a flower yet. Right. So you can tell that they've eaten the stores that were brought in by the worker bees. Um, and it was just poisonous enough to kill them. So, so you brought up, you brought up something I think we should explore just a little bit there because What's that? Uh, you're absolutely right. Most bee kills, uh, you're actually killing nurse bees next to the hive. That's what you, that's what you actually observe is, is dead bees next to the hive. And if you look at them very closely, you'll, you'll, you'll see that they're still have all their body hair, uh, Bees are kind of like me. Uh, when as they age, they kind of lose their body hair, and and worker bees actually, if you look at them very closely, have le- quite a less quite a bit less body hair than than a nurse bee, the young bee that just hatched. And what ends up happening is the the worker bees actually die in the field, and and bees do that by nature. When they're sick, they don't die at the hive. Uh, given an opportunity, they'll fly away and die. And I've actually observed, I tried to catch it with my camera video and I, I haven't been successful, but I've actually observed worker bees carrying off uh, sisters that have died in or around the colony. They actually pick these things up and fly them away. Mm-hmm. So, so when you see a few dead bees next to a colony after a, a pesticide exposure, you're not seeing anywhere near what actually happened to that hive you're seeing you're seeing young bees usually young bees that are were exposed to the toxins coming in but the field bees die in the field so again you and a few other um big beekeepers uh with you know thousands of hives have been on the front lines in my opinion uh fighting to to make create awareness and to make the government or somebody protect your your livestock and that has how is that all unfolded at this point we have the we have the best government that money can buy <laughs> and and you know uh, i started becoming active in in early 2000s because of the carborol issue it was either put up or shut up i mean if we didn't if we didn't get a change in the cultural practices here uh one of the ways I, I, I talk about that is that I was running about 3,800 colonies of bees during that, time, during that time slot. And between 2000 and 2003, somewhere in there, I killed, I killed 18,000 of those 3,800 colonies. You, you killed? What do you mean? There were, uh, we actually, we actually, uh, it was the same time that, that the Australian borders were open and I had an exclusive for importation of Australian package bees. Mm-hmm. And so we were, I was buying Australian package bees to, to restart colonies that were getting clobbered here in Minnesota. And we, we started more colonies, quite a few, about a little over three times as many colonies than I actually ran. Uh, um, no, it's more like five times as many colonies as I actually ran uh, in the three-year period of time. They're trying to trying to keep the bee operation afloat. Okay, and they just didn't make it. They just don't make it. Yeah. 
And what did you attribute that to? Pesticide? Yeah, same thing. Yeah, the the carbaryl and my, you know, the actual outright killing of the hives in the field uh, here in Minnesota. But then, but then the other part of it was that, uh, the equipment was somewhat toxic, and so it was kind of a crapshoot when you uh, try and establish a new colony in the old equipment, uh, how toxic it was. So, you know, it's interesting. It seems like I've thought about this for a long time and about the whole narrative about beekeeping and the pesticides. Uh, and it seems like, you know, this is a very broad brush, but it seems like you can divide up beekeeping into three different strata. So on the bottom, you got people like me, we would be considered hobbyists. And most of us get into it because we're, you know, at some point we're thinking, oh, I'm going to save the bees, right? <laughs> and get myself a beehive and then the education follows and then there's the other strata of beekeeping which is i would say more the scientific beekeeper mentality and then there's the guys like you out on the in the field actually doing the work uh as well as actually uh being activists as much as you possibly can in in that world um because you're you're closely tied to the farmers that are actually using these these chemicals and so that relationship with you has got to be just a little bit it's got to be hard i mean i don't know how you i don't know how you can i don't know how you do it because it's your livestock right <laughs> absolutely it's my livestock I, i'm i'm here to tell you if my neighbor farmer you know dairy farmer was losing you know, like I did last year, 90%. Uh, if he lost 90% of his milking cows, uh, the University of Minnesota and every other university in the country would be here trying to figure out what's going on. So who has been your allies out there in regular regulatory uh, agencies? Anybody? Uh, regulatory agencies. Uh, the one that, that is most applicable to us is probably U.S. EPA because they're the ones that they're the only entity in the United States that's in charge of the regulation of pesticides. If you have a pesticide kill in a beehive, you can't call your local sheriff and get anything done. You got to call, you know, depending on what state you're in. In my case, I'm a summer in Minnesota. I have to call Minnesota Department of Agriculture, mm -hmm. and they they have a, an agreement with uh, EPA to regulate pesticides in in this state and most states have that you know that it's called primacy and you know it's technical it's uh i don't know how technical we want to get here for, for your listeners no, yeah well but okay so all in all have they been uh any assistance to you any real assistance okay so i mean i got really uh, active on on this on the carburetor issue because it was taken up our family business, you know, and uh, it was kind of interesting. Uh, pesticides come up for re-registration about on a 15-year cycle, and in about 2000, I don't don't quote the date on me here, but it was about 2000 2001. Uh, carburetor was up for re-registration. And I found that out, and and um, I, I was working with several environmental groups. Uh, the one that I 
actually ended up working on carborol with was uh, beyond pesticides. Okay. We put in uh, some really substantive comments about uh, the carborol thing. Uh, um, I talked with extensively. We had we had um, the Department of Agriculture out numerous times taking reports on on bee yards that have been clobbered and uh i didn't feel like i was getting any any satisfaction with minnesota so i i contacted region five uh headquartered back in in um, chicago minnesota part of region five mm -hmm. and talked with folks there and and uh we actually had a, a meeting in at the department of agriculture in minnesota that the minnesota honey producers our local state bee organization was invited to uh to discuss uh the pesticide issue that was going on up here with with the department of agriculture and region five and when that when that kind of didn't feel like that was going anywhere. I, I kept going up the totem pole until we, I was eventually talking to US EPA back in Washington, D.C. And uh, I ended up uh, actually had one of their senior scientists uh, come to Minnesota, not specifically to, to look at our situation, but he spent he spent the day with me, one day with me, and uh, I turned around and showed him beehives and, and what they look like after they get sprayed and, and what they look like before they get sprayed and the, the, the proximity of the popple growths and the bee yards and, and you know, what, how you could tell when a popple grow is about to get sprayed and, and what it looks like after it's got sprayed and, you know, whatever. And so uh, I pretty much had federal EPA's ear there on Carborol for a little while. For how long? Well, it's interesting. They actually, during as part of their re-registration process, they actually uh, required uh, Bayer was the current owner of the registration on Carborol at that time, Bayer Crop Science, and they actually made Bayer Crop Science do a study specifically in hybrid poplar trees um, uh, to kind of document what was going on and see if there was... Good good well one would think so right <laughs> who did the study well do you remember yeah i who? actually know the scientists that did the study oh, just tell me the school huh which which university did the study oh it wasn't it was a bear it was a bear uh, uh a bear scientist bear scientist of course oh so okay this is this is a dirty secret <laughs> stop that, it this is a dirty secret stop. that most people don't know and that is that oh, God. that uh we have a we have a thing called the Data Quality Act, and it it's it's beyond just the U.S. EPA. It, it it any federal bureaucracy is covered by Data Quality Act, and and it basically says that you have to use the best data data possible in order to make a decision. You know, I mean that's my Anderson paraphrase. Mm -hmm. And what what that has done at U.S. EPA means that you have to do all your studies using GLP, which is good laboratory practices. And it, it makes the cost of doing a study uh, go up through the roof. And so academia can't afford, you know, universities can't afford to do GLP studies. They do good science. They, they, they discover uh, good information, but, but US EPA refuses to look at it because it's not been done using GLP. And so uh, 
pretty much what's boiled down to, and this this isn't just U.S. EPA. It works at FDA and some of the other agencies back there. The the regulated community is the one that hands the studies to the regulators. So, in other words, Dow and Dupont and Bayer and Syngenta and you know. Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to be inclusive here, but the chemical manufacturers uh, either do the studies in-house or pay someone to do the studies, and it's proprietary business information at that point, goes to US EPA, and that's what EPA makes their, their uh, decisions on how to regulate with. Which is why they continue to re-register these same poisons over and over and over again. Um, I don't think any have been, this is crazy. This is crazy. So, <laughs> so I, should, I should tell you a little more about Carborel, right? Because we're, we're talking about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I, I, I just told you that uh, US EPA required that Bayer do a, a study specific to hybrid poplar trees. Um, I talked to the scientists. He couldn't, I, we couldn't just sit down like you and I are right now and have a conversation about what makes, what would make a good study, right? So he would call, he would call me up and he would talk about an apple study that's being done over in France. And he, he would tell me what they were doing there and, and whatever. And I'd say, well, that's really stupid science because they, they would, uh, they were spraying an apple orchard, but they'd wait till the orchard was completely out of bloom. They would, use a herbicide in the, in the floor of the orchard, and then they would spray carborel at night with beehives located next to the orchard. And and then they were trying to say that, that uh, you know, the bees were being exposed to carborel. Well, and nothing was happening to the bees. Of course not. There's because there's no flowers there. They're not flying around looking for stuff. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so one of the things I told EPA, I said, I said, you know, I have problems with uh, the popple trees when they're young, because uh, once the once the tree gets tall and it closes the canopy, it, it pretty much chokes out the flowering things in the in the base, and so there isn't much forage for the bees in a in a closed canopy orchard. I mean, uh, popple plantation. So you so you want to you want to tell them that they have to use a popple grow that's less than three years old. And the other thing is you want to, it, it makes a huge difference what else is blooming in the area. Uh, back here in Minnesota, we have uh, linden trees or basswood trees. And uh, when the basswoods come into bloom, they're really attractive to bees. And and you can't pry a bee off of a ba uh, basswood blossom and send them over on a clover blossom because they won't go. And so, so I said, uh, you can't, you can't actually do your testing during basswood bloom because if, even if you spray, if you have the bees uh, adjacent to this grove and there's basswood trees there and blooming, they're going to be in the basswoods. So is that essentially what happened? Did they study here in the U.S. Um, the uh, poplar tree at the correct time of year when it would have been attractive to a bee? Did they even do that? They, they used a five-year-old orchard, and they did it. At, at, they did the, all their data collection during the first about the first two weeks of July, which is exactly what I, the opposite of what I told them. So it's almost like they took your information about what not to do as 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 a as a template of what to of what they should do. 
<laughs> well, and the the reason I drove on this a little bit is because that is exactly what has gone on. Uh, uh, one of the things I'm not picking on Democrats or Republicans. No. Okay, but we all we all eat food. Okay, but but here's here's one thing I want to tell you is. It doesn't make any difference whether Democrats are in power or Republicans, conservatives or liberals, or it doesn't make any difference because U.S. EPA is the one that makes the decisions, all right? Uh, yes, the the uh, president appoints the head of EPA, you know, uh, and the Congress can steer EPA. You know, they got the purse strings. Uh, I have yet to see him... Uh, make very much of an effort to oversee or do anything about it, but whether Democrat or Republican president. Yeah, no, it doesn't, it matter. doesn't make any it difference. It doesn't make any difference. That's my experience too. Uh, we lost 100% of our, our pollinator protection during the Obama era. And I'm not picking on Obama because it's, this is a U.S. EPA problem, but, but under a democratic uh, controlled uh, DC, uh, pollinator protection went to heck in a handbasket, and it was well orchestrated by the by the chemical industry. So the uh, it was interesting. Um, I can't remember the gal's name. Uh, you know, they they came up with this idea. Obama came up with this idea that well, this is interesting. Uh, one of the one of the things I did in life here is is being politically active. As I was on the National Honey Bee Advisory Board, and uh, the two national organizations, the two national organizations, the American Beekeeping Federation and the American Honey Producers Association, uh, put together this joint board called the National Honey Bee Advisory Board, and we were really politic uh, active in back in D.C. We we made multiple trips to U.S. EPA, and we talked to USDA people, and we talked to Congress people from our home districts, and I mean, we we did the gamut, the gamut, right? and uh, U.S. EPA didn't know what to do with us, and so they didn't they didn't like a group of of I think there was eight of us on on the board. They didn't like a group of eight beekeepers that were knowledgeable on on the topic to come into EPA because it, it it disrupted coffee break, right? So they decided that they uh, they actually put together a bee team, uh, a, a pollinator team, and I challenge you to find out a list of who was from EPA that was on that team, uh, the Honeybee Advisory Board. We specifically asked for a list of the participants from EPA, what department they were at and and how they fit into the program and whatever. And EPA re flat refused to tell us who they were. Uh, we kind of got a list together. We know about 97% of who, who the players were back there, but they wouldn't let us talk. If we had a problem with a, a labeling issue, they got really bent out of shape if we got on and start sending emails to Meredith Laws. You know, she's she's in charge of labeling back there. But but isn't that where you should have the conversation if you got a, a pesticide with a poor label? Well, and exactly. And I find that any labeling around our food is is where the trouble starts. Labeling is what they don't want. And I found that just as a consumer 
that uh, if you if you try and fight for any sort of labeling law in just Sacramento, I've never fought in Washington. I've always been absolutely dismayed at the sheer power that comes out against labeling. And to me, that's just telling information. It's like, what don't you want me to know? Because <laughs> that's exactly what I want to know. Because what people don't, what people don't, doesn't translate maybe to everybody's ear is that if it's bill, if it's killing bees in the field or in the orchard, it's in our food too. Well, good case in point is, you know, uh, check out your oatmeal and see how much glyphosate or Roundup is in it, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did you want to say anything else about that? Well, yeah, I do, because you mentioned earlier, it's almost like they, they would pay attention to what we say and do the exact opposite. And that is exactly what happened. Well, okay, so what what this looked like, uh, and, and, and it's it just the where it landed on the calendar during the Obama administration, but uh, Obama, you know, his wife put in the first uh, uh, official garden there at the um, at the White House, and had had uh, one part of that was the beehive. Uh, we uh, we actually went out. Honeybee Advisory Board met with the the gentleman that that from grounds there that kept the beehive. We actually had a tour of the White House and whatever, and and we talked with uh, some some of Obama's staff specifically about the pesticide issues. And I, in my opinion, I think that might have been part of the reason why they decided to put together this pollinator task force. And, and they got the, you know, Federal Highway Administration involved and the military was involved. And I don't know, we, we had eight or ten uh, DNR fisheries, forestry. I mean, everybody was supposed to go save the pollinators, right? Sounds great. Well kind of simultaneous with all this was going on what was epa had basically thrown the honeybee advisory board out and said we want we want to have this discussion about pollinator issues inside the pesticide program dialogue committee the ppdc and we want a singular beekeeper representative uh, to be involved on on the ppdc on the pollinator issues and PPDC does lots of pesticide-related issues, pollinators being one of them. So part, right off the bat, we're watered down because we're, we get a few minutes of, of quarterly meetings to talk about pollinators with one representative. And what was interesting is they basically appointed uh, the representative. They, they, the first beekeeper representative on PPDC was uh, Darren Cox beekeeper from Utah, um, Darren was on the National Honeybee Advisory Board, and and when during his tenure at on the PPDC, uh, when issues would come up, we would re we would regularly dialogue. Uh, Darren would dialogue with the in the Honeybee Advisory Board, and so a short time into this, they decided to make subgroups at the PPDC that would part of them would deal with forage issues around honeybees part of them would deal with um, uh, pesticide labeling issues uh, part of them would deal with enforcement issues and then they they, they uh, went to the bee industry and asked for um, representatives for each of those things well what was interesting uh, most of the guys that 
ended up there were part of the National Honeybee Advisory Board. And so our message was, it didn't make any difference who you talk to in the bee industry and their representation. The message was said with slightly different words, but it was the same message. So EPA didn't know what to do with that either because they were getting... So the message was still... It's the pesticides. It's the pesticides. Okay, okay. That good. doesn't fit their narrative though because... No, their narrative no. is that it's varroa mite. Right, right. The varroa mite, in my opinion, is the deflection tactic that they have carefully crafted and financed. Like it's almost like they've built an institution around the mite, and um, it's a great tool because it deflects away from from pesticide. And I don't know at your level of beekeeping, but at my level of beekeeping, which is like I said, I'm like the lower end of the of the ladder, but up to the scientific beekeeping, the, it's all they talk about is the mites in a really weird way. <laughs> they can't, you cannot bring up pesticides at my level on the discussion threads or anything. You just get trolled. Yeah. And, and, and that's exactly, it doesn't make any difference what level you're at. Uh, you too? Uh, you get trolled too by this kind of stuff? <laughs> well, wow. so, so, but let's talk about varroa mite for a minute because uh, okay. I think your your uh, listeners would need to know this. Uh, you know, the varroa mite was not native. It's not, we use aphis mellithra is the strain of bees that, that we use here in primarily in the United States. European honeybee. European yeah. honeybees. Um, the varroa mite uh, was actually uh, a pest on the Asian honeybee, one in China and whatever, and it jumps species. And, and because it jumps species, uh, our, our European honeybee is not well adapted to try and, con you know, to tolerate it. And so uh, can varroa mite un un uncontrolled uh, uh, kill a you know, one of our honeybee colonies? Absolutely. But most of us beekeepers uh, don't keep honeybees just because uh, it's, you know, a fun hobby or something, you know. I'm trying to feed, you know, three, four uh, generations of family here with, with my honeybees, and I need them to, to be productive. And so when when varroa might uh, get up to an economic threshold, we reduce the numbers of them and... and and keep them, you know, pretty much in check. Right. The other part of this is when varroa mite first uh, became prevalent here in the United States, um, a lot of our bee researchers would tell us commercial beekeepers, hey guys, you need to not just treat to kill varroa mites, you just need to figure out what the economic threshold is when they start doing damage to your colony. And and keep them below economic threshold, but not like trying to stay at zero. And what was interesting is, uh, it depends on which researcher you would talk to, but uh, the numbers that were commonly tossed out there was that a colony could easily uh, tolerate a thousand varroa mites, or maybe up to 1,500 varroa mites before it would start doing economic damage to the to the hive. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, the chem industry was happy to get involved in this too. And so uh, I'm pretty sure, well, we, we had a product called Apistan that was 
that the chem industry came out with, mm -hmm. active ingredients called fluvalinate. Um, and it was fairly, I won't say it was non-toxic to honeybees, but it was, it took a fair amount of it to, to damage a honeybee, but it was pretty toxic to the varroa mite. And for years, we, we would put, uh, we would use apistan to reduce our mite counts in the colonies. We'd do it in the fall of the year. We'd do it once. And, and the way we would monitor at that point is we would put a, a little whiteboard that was, had grease on it. And, and you would put the apistan in there and, and you'd, you would uh, see how many mites you'd knock out of this colony. And it was common to knock out oh, a thousand plus mites. Uh, I've seen I've seen sticky boards with in the excess of 2,500 mites that would uh, be killed and drop onto the sticky board in, in a 24 hour period. And what was interesting, uh, after you would reduce the mite load, the colony would turn around and would recover. You know, would you know would uh, you know we wouldn't lose it over the winter or whatever. Today. Um, Bee researchers are telling us that we have to have less than three mites for a a uh, two hundred bee sample in the fall of the year. Uh, you know we've got probably somewhere between ten and twelve thousand bees in the colony uh, when it goes into winter, and so you can do the math on it. Uh, at three to 200, you're not knocking very, if you were to knock every mite out of that colony, you're not knocking very many mites out. And, and, and three is considered a death knell now. If you got three mites in your colony in the fall of the year, uh, uh, the probability that you'll have it alive the next spring is relatively low. So uh, some of the researchers try and tell us that, that the viruses, that the mites, can vector are more virulent than they used to be. Nobody's actually done any studies that prove that. Yeah, yeah. That's all coming out of, uh, is that Randy Oliver studies? I mean, they're not scientific, I know that, but um, is that where that's coming from? The, the person that the person that annoys me the most that, that makes that statement is Dennis Van Engelsdorf. Uh, Dr. 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 Van Engeldorf, he, he he's uh, University of Maryland. Uh, when there's congressional hearing or whatever, he's one of the people that they call on because uh, he runs. Uh, uh, well, he's just moved on, but he he's established and ran for a number of years that um, be informed partnership. Beekeepers generally try and treat early enough in the fall that they reduce the mite load so that the last several generations of bees that hatch hatch without having mite pressure on them and so we we, we reduce them our mite loads uh depends on the uh, part of the country and here in minnesota we try and do it in early august um uh you know the further south you go you can go a little bit later because your brood cycles hang on longer but but in uh in my situation we try and reduce it in august one of the other dirty little secrets about mites is that, and most people don't realize this, but pesticides, and I'm going to use the term broadly because it's more than just a single pesticide that does this. There are several that do antagonize the mite, varroa mite, where they go into hyperlaying mode. That's the way I would describe it. 
Wow. And I, I actually have pictures. I actually have pictures that I could show you of that. Um, so they activate something in their in their breeding cycle. Yeah. Or or hormonally, because that's how they're affecting bees, right? Yes. Interesting. One of the things that's kind of interesting to me is uh, at, when I was still on the National Honeybee Advisory Board, um, we had official tours three different years or two different years, three different times in the almond uh, groves in California. And we had uh, all the way up to uh, Jim Jones, who was acting director of uh, uh, OPP, Office of Pesticide Programs. And we had uh, their senior scientist out there. Uh, we had we had a lot of uh, top brass from EPA that came out and, and actually did tours in California. And we showed them the difference of hives that were summered in non-agricultural areas as compared to agricultural areas. And it's night and day difference, uh, even, even in the same beekeeper, because there's some beekeepers that, that are large enough that they actually will run um, bees down in an agricultural area. Uh, I'll, and and then they might run them up in the foothills. I'm I'm thinking of operations like uh, Cox Honey out in Utah. Uh, uh, Darren operates it, and Darren Cox, uh, he's based in Logan, and he he runs a number of bees around Logan, Utah. But he he runs about half of his operation up in the mountains in in western Wyoming, up at about seven eight thousand feet. So what what is the difference? What are you seeing in those, like the ones that are summering in healthy food? So yes. the difference and is remarkable? The difference is remarkable in two ways. Because first of all, if you're in a non-agricultural area, generally your mortality rate will be probably, even, even today, probably be down around 20% uh, annual. And that's another dirty little thing we ought to talk about too, about being formed partnership and, and surveys. But same beekeeper, same genetic stock of bees down in an agricultural area, and you're up at 65, 70% losses. So, you know, you, you can't say it was because he let bromite get out of out of hand or, or he had different, he bought queens from a different source or, you know, those things all go away when it, when it happens inside the same bee operation. Well, yeah. And the bottom line is, is that everything all of us benefit from a healthy chemical free diet and that's just nutrition our nutritional system is pretty poor well so so here's here's a couple of the other things that have happened you you keep talking about systemics and we should go there let me ask you something can we go back to the um to the the popular trees for a second or poplar when your bees would die from that. Was the poplar tree in flower at that point? Like I know, I think they have a tiny little flower. No, right? there's two things going on. Uh, poplar tree bees don't work poplars for pollen and nectar. What they do work poplar trees for is propolis, and nobody talks about that. Propolis. So the propolis would be affected by the seven. Ooh. Bees. Bees get That's nasty. Uh, the gums off of, of trees, right. the tree resins and whatever, and they make this the this material called propolis. Right. And it's it's kind of like a glue slash antibiotic slash whatever. Yeah. No, the the issue around the poplar trees was um, they were going for maximum growth on these. And so what they would do is they would plant them in rows and then they would they would come through with a field cultivator and they would till them. 
you know, what ended up happening is, is there would be a nice row of thistles and milkweed and clovers and whatever down the, down the actual tree row, and then there would be bare dirt in the middle, and then down, down the next tree row, you'd have the same thing. Because they were so insistent on tilling, they would constantly reseeding, you know, all these things that were be attractive yummy weeds and so and this is part of what i said earlier why when the canopy would close and and the vegetation under the trees would die out our problem would would uh, be reduced but when the trees were young and the and the, and the area was quite open and they could still drive tractors through and do this tilling they they had a veritable feast area out there for bees Okay, this is not off topic, but what were they doing with these poplar? Were these being sold to municipalities or like tree nursery industry? <laughs> what were they doing with the poplar? Uh, biomass fuel production was what they, the reason they put them in. What does that mean? What is biomass fuel production? What is that about? You grow a tree, you grind it up and burn it for power generation. And in other parts of the country, it was alternative energy scale up and uh, some places they were they were intending to to harvest native grasses and some places you know dependent there was there were five or six different ways they were going to do this uh some places they were actually going to plant alfalfa and harvest it to burn anyway we're going off <laughs> wow well we're sort of off uh uh so because uh, i think we need to take that rabbit trail a little ways out you can delete it all later if you want to um, so what ended up happening is it started off with the minnesota dnr department of natural resources as the uh the entity that the federal government chose to uh to manage us which makes sense it's they're raising trees and you know dnr forestry why wouldn't you the other thing that went on simultaneous with that was that the cost of buying Stumpage is the term they use on state lands was going up through the roof. And some of our paper companies back here at that time was in champion paper, saw these popple groves going up and they thought, you know, maybe we need to control our supply. And so they actually went and hired some of the foresters away from the DNR, started plantations with the idea that they would grind this stuff up for paper, right? And so that was part of the DNR part was, uh, I don't remember. They, they had 2,700 acres or something like that, that they were actually part of that DNR program. But we ended up with probably in the, between the DNR and the paper companies, we ended up with probably in the excess of 30,000 acres. And what was interesting about that is uh, the DNR never harvested any trees for biomass. And when the paper companies actually got the trees big enough that they took them down and they and thought they were going to turn them into paper, they'd put them into their debarking machines and whatever, and the tree would blow up because it didn't have any structure. They grew so fast that the the growth rings on them were way big, and the and the stuff was wasn't dense. So the fibers just wasn't it wasn't enough to hold it together. It wasn't enough to hold there was it. There's no density. So they ended they end the paper company ended up grinding the stuff and using it for cardboard instead of paper. The other thing in a lot of these plantations they just walked away from. And so we have another another business going in our community right now. There's a, a company that that's making pallets 
and they get these popple trees and they cut them down to two befores and slats for pallets because you know they're a one use thing and then you throw them away basically wow what an industry <laughs> it just it was just stupid we just know how to waste <laughs> we just create waste that's insane so yeah let's get back and and let's go back to mites for a second i'm um okay very interested in in this topic and i know it's it's highly charged highly political and uh polarized and that's what i'm fascinated with is the polarization around it around the mite because again i believe that the mite has been utilized as a deflection tool and um so to to distract and to turn the conversation away from pesticides and all the chemicals that bees are enduring and um that's what i object to about the whole thing is that you know you can treat 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 for mites and that's great but if your bees are still eating poison they're not you know that's what they're dying of mites are just a symptom because if your bees are healthy and they've got a healthy diet and you know, and they're stable and calm and they're not stressed in any way. They actually do pretty good. They can survive their own mites. They develop their own traits or whatever. It's not the point, though. The point that I object to is how the mite is utilized by the in the narrative to keep us t talking about something other than the problem. That's that's what I that's my big problem. Let's go back to the mite thing here, Terry, because there's a couple things that are that are just simple logic that need to be talked about. Okay, so we talked about the fact that it, you know the new the new norm researchers are trying to tell us is that we can only tolerate three mites per uh, 200b sample, and if we get more than that, uh, that they're gonna the hive is gonna die. Okay, so there's a couple things that, that go on here. Uh, one is that we treat earlier in the season while we still have brood in the colonies. And uh, pretty much everybody's doing that, uh, be it hobbyists or commercial, uh, because we're being told that we need to reduce that mite load early so that we end up with healthy bees. Mites are, are relatively easy to kill on a bee, but mites are very difficult to kill in a cell because they're protected you know they're down in the cap and and whatever and and the bees a lot of the the commercial miticides the the chemical miticides the bees actually physically have the miticide on their body and it's the contact between the body of the bee and the body of the mite that that causes a toxic reaction and kills the mite and and when the mites are down in the cell, there's no they you don't have that interaction, and so when you treat when you have brood in the colony, you're not very effective at killing mites. That's one of the things. You have to put a miticide in that has a fairly long residual, like three weeks, in order for for the mites, the brood that just got laid, to hatch out and the mites become uh, exposed to adult bees. And so, and most miticides aren't, uh, a lot of beekeepers are really careful to try and use organic uh, acids, natural occurring acids and stuff for mite control. And, and most of those acids are only good for 
uh, even even in the extended versions, are two weeks is kind of stretching the far end of the window. And so we can knock quite a few mites out part of, of part of the cycle, but we miss we miss the last part of the cycle. And so we're not reducing the our mite control done early in the season doesn't reduce the mites mm -hmm. as, as much as one would think, right? The other thing that happens here is that that a bee colony, when it goes into a, uh, a winter or the or dormant state, um, they significantly reduce their population. Mm -hmm. uh, during the middle of summer, back before pesticides, we used to figure that a, a robust colony bee would would have maybe fifty thousand worker bees in the colony. And even today, uh, uh, you might have thirty thousand in 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 a colony. And so, if you got three mites per hundred uh, two hundred bees on thirty thousand bees, and and the colony shrinks up and 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 gets rid of the welfare bees as they go into the dormant cycle right. in the winter, all of a sudden you you've uh, got an exponential change of the ratio of mites to bees because uh a colony likes to winter with somewhere between eight and twelve thousand bees so so you've you've without doing anything you automatically take the number and you triple it whatever number you had with mites you triple it and and the other part of that is as they go dormant there's the the queen reduces her brood laying and for the most part, uh, uh, an upper Midwest colony, uh, the North Dakota, Minnesota, Nebraska, whatever, North South Dakota, uh, the brood cycle is pretty much done by early September. Mm -hmm. And and so the mites that were down in the brood all of a sudden are up on the bees where you can count them. And so so okay. this concept that that all of a sudden you have more mites is a lot of it's just simple math of when you are counting. Okay. Now, having said all of those mouthfuls, the other thing that, that factors into this is most of this upper Midwest is sprayed late in the season with insecticide. If you're in North mm -hmm. Dakota, for instance, uh, uh, you, you're probably, uh, you're probably out pollinating sunflowers it's mm -hmm. almost a given that you're going to get sprayed with with something like Warrior or Mustang or whatever. Um, most of those insecticides cause the mites to go into this hyperlaying mode. So even if you had your mites under control in in uh, late August, first of September, um, once that mite population all of a sudden goes into hyperlaying mode and the bee population is starting to shrink because it's going into the dormant cycle. That's when you end up with these these mite loads that look like they well they are. It's an explosion. Okay, so so let's just take that one step further now. The colony is is gotten enough toxins in that it's that it's dying. Let's say, and so it's down to uh, two frames of bees and and a queen and and you want to figure out what's going on with it and so you come in and you do a, an inspection of the colony and all of a sudden you got uh 20 mites or 30 mites per 200 bees well 
what happened was the bees died, the mites, the mites didn't die. The mites were staying in the center of the cluster where it's warm. And all of a sudden, it looks for all the world like you had a varroa mite problem. Right, right. So where is this? Um, who's who's looking at this? Anybody? Because this is the first I've heard, and I, I think it makes sense. Because, of course, it's going to, the chemicals, of course, they're going to affect the mites because they're insecticides. Well, okay, so so the other thing I started to tell you was uh, we, we had the EPA out and toured uh, the almond industry, and uh, within 24 hours, like we got, a, I got a call, or I don't, yeah, I'm pretty sure I got the call. Um, Bear Crop Science and Syngenta and BASF are all crying foul. You're out talking about our chemicals, the EPA, and and we're not, we weren't in the room, and this ain't fair, you know. Right. And I said, well, I said, you know, I, we can tour you guys too show you the exact same thing that we showed EPA and we'll, we'll have the same, same conversation. So uh, we ended up with BASF and Syngenta and uh, Bayer and DuPont. And I don't remember, I had seven or eight um, uh, mostly science people from these uh, chem uh, places that we National Honey Bee Advisory Board took on a tour and we were at, we were intending to be out in in the orchard showing them the difference between egg bees and non-egg bees and whatever. Well, in the morning it was raining when they when they showed up, and I had a couple of my kids are pretty good amateur photographers, and so when EPA was there, I had my son just uh, shadow us all day long with his camera, and he took about 350, 400 pictures that day. And uh, when we got done, uh, we handed all the people from EPA a thumb drive with all these pictures. Because, you know, they had, they brought along their phones and whatever, whatever. And I said, you know, I really, you, you're welcome to do that. But first of all, you don't know what you're taking a picture of. And second of all, I want you to listen to what I got to say. Yeah. And, and we're going to just know that we're going to hand you a, a, uh, an extensive bunch of pictures at the end of the day of everything you saw. So you're not going to miss anything. Okay. So I had all those pictures. And so uh, uh, I invited the chem boys over to my house and, and we uh, got the computer hooked up to the TV and put them up on, you know, a good size screen so we could see what we were looking at. And, and we sat down for about uh, close to an hour before the rain broke and uh, had a discussion in my house. And one of the things I said to these chemical boys was that, it's interesting, when I get a soy, soybean aphid spray here in Minnesota, not only do you kill my bees, but it seems like I get an explosion of varroa mites. And I can't tell you which one of the chem boys said this, but he didn't even take a breath. He said, well, we'd expect that. They knew. They know. They know. They know that some of those chemicals cause an explosion of mites. My almond growers know that. My My... Back here in Minnesota, my soybean growers know that. If you spray for soybean aphid real early in the season, you will put another application of insecticide on for spider mites. Hmm. Wow. They know. They know. It's amazing. It's amazing. I, I do. You know, you've got the same goal I do. I just want, I want pollinators to be able to survive our agricultural system. <laughs> well, so, so we need to talk about this because... That part of it, because 
keeping pollinators healthy isn't rocket science. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, what what the issue is here is that pollinators are just like you and I. They need clean food. Yeah. And and so and the other thing that that goes with this is uh, the chem industry likes to paint the bee industry up like we're all or nothing. What do you mean? I don't understand that. What do you mean? Well, uh, that the bee industry claims you can't ever use a, a pesticide around anything, period. And that's not true. Timing of the pesticide application is everything because pollinators are only in a crop for a very short period of time. It doesn't make Soybeans is probably one of the things that's the biggest anomaly because it, it flowers in, in stages. But pollinators are only on plants when they're in bloom. Well, wait a minute. Let's just go back and clarify one thing. You're saying pollinators, but what you're really talking about is honeybees. Because pollinators are all different things. And they're not really measured in the same way that we measure No, I, I, said, I, said, I said exactly what I meant, Terry. I, I, you meant, I meant native, pollinators. So you mean honeybees yep. as well as uh, butterflies, natives. Absolutely. Native okay, so go ahead then. Okay, because because all pollinators, their only source of food is the bloom, the nectar and pollen produced off of a blooming plant. Right. It doesn't make any difference whether it's a honeybee or a bumblebee or a sweat bee or, or a butterfly. That holds true for all of them. Right. If the plant is not in bloom, the, the pollinators are not there because there's no food there. Right. And so so keeping pollinators healthy is a matter of keeping toxins off of and out of bloom. Flowers. Not not flowers, bloom. Bloom. Okay, what do you mean? What's the difference? The difference is if the plant is okay, so I, I just mentioned soybeans. Uh, soybeans right now are starting to come into bloom in Minnesota. From the time you planted them until last week, you could go out there and drop a nuclear bomb in it in there. And I don't have a, a, a bee out there, and there's probably not any bumblebees or sweat bees or butterflies or anything else out there. You, as long as you use a pesticide that degrades before the bloom starts, uh, uh, mm -hmm. you can knock yourself out, in my opinion. I don't, I don't okay. necessarily agree with the use of pesticide, but as far as keeping my bees healthy, as long as the bloom is healthy when it comes, as long as the pollen and nectar is not contaminated when that plant comes into bloom, that's what the key is. So what about systemics? Because they're inside and they last there for a long that, time. That is the problem with systemics because when, when pesticides were first, quote unquote, invented by primarily E. Farben during, during the World Wars, um, right. uh, they were almost all petroleum-based, and they were oil-soluble and whatever. And they had to use um, stickers and stuff to actually make the pesticides stay on the plant because most plants are, well, all plants are pretty much water-soluble. And mm -hmm. so the, uh, early on, they used uh, stickers to make the... the pesticide adhere to the plant in order for it to come in contact with the pest that was going to visit the plant. Mm -hmm. Once they determined how to make pesticides water soluble, all of a sudden now you can make them systemic because you could you could inject it into the plant, you could put it on the 
in near the root. You could inject it near the root system, or you could even put it on the seed and let the leach into the ground, and then the, the root, as it formed, would pick it up and pull it up into the plant and make the plant toxic. And and that's, that's where the systemic part of this uh, thing comes into play, because now you're making the plant the pesticide delivery system. Yeah. And, and so the plant is toxic from the time it's planted until after it's harvested. There's actually, uh, you know, USDA doesn't like to talk about it, but they have tolerance levels for how much pesticide can be in your corn or your beans or your wheat or whatever. Right. But there's uh, there's still another part of that, too. It lasts longer in woody plants and trees. And I think the last study stopped at about eight years and still found yep. it. And um, I forget what the plant was. It was a woody plant, though. And there's not really I think I think one university is doing a study right now on trees because it evidently it lasts longer. We know that. They know yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. They know uh, uh, you know that. Neonix, uh, metacloprid in particular, was was uh, registered for use on on what they call it, prom flute uh, almond trees. Mm -hmm. Is it still? Are they still using it on almond? Neonics? Well, okay, so uh, they did. They determined uh, CDPR, California Department of Pesticide Regulation, um, determined that they were having problems with tree injection on eucalyptus that the stuff would build up in the eucalyptus tree and was causing hell on pollinators because eucalyptus bloom yeah. and so uh they they did a data call in uh, uh cdpr is the one california is the the one state that actually does or requires testing in the same manner that epa does and actually cdpr and um California Department of Pesticide Regulation, US EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, and PRIMA, which is the Canadian version of EPA, uh, collaborate on registrations in, in the pesticides in that zone. Mm -hmm. And so CDPR actually did a data call-in with, with several of the pesticide manufacturers uh, because they they knew that these were accumulating in woody plants. And when was this? Ten, five, six years ago. Okay. The response was interesting. Bayer just requested that they remove almonds off of the list of, of treatment sites. What does that mean? Translate that for me. Well, what it means is they knew darn good and well that it got into woody plants, and so we aren't going to do the testing because we already know what the answer to the question is, and so. Oh, so they didn't even want to look at the at the results. They didn't want no, to report they, on. No, they it. didn't even. They wouldn't do the test. They just they just removed the the registration because you don't want to know the answer. Because you don't want to look at the answer, because then you have to do something or admit something. Something like that. Wow, you're a wealth of knowledge. You are. You're just like you've got so much information. Seems like it. You've been doing this a long time, so. You know, it's sort of looking, I'll just say it out loud, it's sort of looking like the end game for pollinators. Um, honeybees, I think they'll be able to cobble along for a little bit longer. But, you know, everything that eats nectar and pollen and is an insect or even a bird 
is highly affected by what we grow. And uh, it's not just our food crops, it's our landscape crops too. You know, like billions and billions and billions of ornamental flowering trees that are totally pollinator attractive. And totally toxic if you buy them from any place except Home Depot, right? Everything at Home Depot is treated with that. They're saying they have a label on Home Depot plants saying that they are treated, but that they're treating it for, they're treating it to protect uh, the plant from aphids and other such things. And they say it's treated with a neonic. That's here in California. Yeah. I mean, everybody is. Um, all the big tree growers that sell to cities, municipalities, because that's what I deal with is trees. Because I don't have any meadows anywhere near me. I only have city trees. So that's my jam is just trying to get as many healthy, organic, you know, systemic free um, trees in the city. And I include fungicides in that too because of that University of Bologna study that showed that fungicides enhance the power of neonics to a, a pollinator. So so we should talk about fungicides and growth regulators <laughs> if you're... If you're uh... Let's, let's, can I, can I make a, a, another appointment and talk with you again you about, cause that is massive and I'm not hearing anything about it. I'm not hearing anything about it. And they're everywhere. Growth regulators are in trees, fungicides. Well, and also I'm going to, I'm going to just tell you, and I'll, I'll delete this part um, because so much of this is wonderful, but I'm really sick <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, I'm actually suffering right now. My head is pounding. So um, let's end it. Um, and we'll come back. We'll we'll do a proper ending before you and I actually do hang up. But I totally want to talk with you again. Tom Theobald was right. <laughs> he, go, he kept saying, you need to talk to Jeff. Then why would you want to do that? Well, I want to know. I mean, yeah, I'm crazy, but I want to know. Well, well, let me throw one thing at you about fungicides. Okay, go one ahead. One thing that really pisses me about EPA. Okay. Okay, go. Oof, I'm going to get mad too, I can tell. <laughs> okay, so how much do you know about the regulatory system at EPA? Anything or no? I, I know a fair amount. The people that are my audience uh, tend to know a fair amount, but they don't know... They don't know the levels of corruption that you and I know. Okay. So are you familiar with the Pelston thing, that SeaTac uh, Pelston thing they did on pollinators? No. Okay. Uh, one of the things that we kept telling them when the bee industry was telling them when we were back there was that, you know, you guys don't know how to test for pollinators because the way the system is set up, um, the only test that they used to do was an LD50, 24 hours, lethal dose, killed 50% of the population 24 hours. That's how they would measure the toxicity of a pesticide, right? Okay. And so if it didn't kill more than 50% of the test population in 24 hours, it didn't require any kind of bee hazard statement. Wow. Okay. Okay. But the problem with an LD50 is that's the presumption is that the pesticide is designed to kill in 24 hours. And so therefore, if it's not killed, it doesn't kill in 24 hours, there's no environmental hazard thing for bees. So enter growth regulators and, and fungicides, right? Okay. Uh, a growth regulator, you tell me, how does a growth regulator kill? I don't know. I don't know. Tell me. It stops. It only kills insects that molt. 
and it, and it kills, it stops the molting process and causes the, the, the insect to not molt and therefore it dies before it hatches. That's what a, that's what an IGR a growth regulator, insect growth regulator does. So molting is a life stage where it would go up to the next right. stage. So, so in, enter a honeybee colony. Do honeybees molt? Yes, they do. They molt just before they before they hatch. You take a a growth regulator and you challenge it against a uh, an adult bee that's eight days old that has all of its P450. That's another whole thing we ought to talk about. All the testing is done on bees that are eight days old when they do these LD50 tests and okay. and uh, bees produce a P450 enzyme that helps them detoxify stuff. Okay, and the P450 enzyme peaks in, 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 in their production right as the bees are going into nurse bees at eight days old. So when you do an LD50 test on eight-day-old bees, it's far different than if you did it on 20-day-old worker bees who no longer produce P450 enzymes. So which one are they testing it on? Eight-day-old bees. Okay. And so, so, so you skew everything as as much as you can. Yeah, we're we're challenging it. We're swiping it on the back of the bees, you know, contact, and we're we're putting it on alfalfa foliage and throwing it in the in the, in a dead alfalfa foliage in the cage, and we make them eat it. Well, of course, they don't eat it anyway, but whatever. So anyway, uh, the bee industry said this ain't good enough. There's a bunch of pesticides that that don't kill acutely on adult bees. And so therefore an LD50 blanket test on every pesticide that crosses your desk is not is not adequate. So they did the CTAC Pelson thing. And guess what they used is the, the stage one thing. If it passes stage one, we don't have to do any additional testing. It's still LD50, acute contact and and whatever. So so uh in 2000 and uh, you'd have to check with Michelle Colopy or pollinator stewardship director because I'm terrible with dates mm -hmm. um, uh, they killed 25% of the bee colonies in the United States coming out of almonds here uh, about three or four years ago and US EPA came out to uh, to Las Banos, California to brand uh, Bob and Jean Brandy's places mm -hmm. and and hosted a, a listening session for beekeepers. And the beekeepers that were in the room, they had 80,000 uh, colonies that were damaged by fungicide slash growth regulator application and late almonds. In the, in the almonds, yeah. In the almonds. Okay. And, and the bee industry told the EPA, look, you're going to have to go back and and labels on growth regulators and fungicides because we're getting beat up, beat to death, right? Yeah. Well, their response is, well, we did Pelston and and uh, we don't have to because our rules say that if we don't kill adult bees with the stuff in 24 hours, it doesn't trigger any additional testing. So we don't care what it does to larvae and, and whatever. Wow. It's just so amazing to me the, uh, I don't know how else to say this, and you know, I'm I'm much more emotional about this topic than than you you would be, but it's just so amazing to me how little they care for the, for this this insect and for the 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 importance of this species for the whole planet. 
It's just so shocking to me. I don't know why I'm still shocked. USDA's answer to all this when you talk to them is, uh, we don't need pollinators in the United States. We can Im import all the, the healthy foods from Brazil and Argentina and whatever. Might add China to the list too, right? They, they pollinate over there by hand in some areas. And I know that's the case in the middle of the country. I know that there's, because um, I was part of an informal group couple years ago looking at uh, beekeepers in the whole middle of the country that were not within five miles of industrial agriculture. It was a large group. So the coasts uh, all the way around, like the edges of the country, the mountainous areas, uh, there you could still find you could still find land that was not industrially treated with chemicals, but it's getting smaller and smaller as you know. <laughs> That's about the size of it as you know. Yep. What do you think people can do? Like, how can how can we make people aware of what they even can do? <laughs> well, what they can do is vote with their checkbook. Yeah. And what would that be? How would they vote? To me, I say buy, you know, find... Buy organic. Organic, right. As much as you can. But now you even got to do your homework around that because they're weakening the organic standards on purpose. Yeah. So you got to do your homework. You got to know your food. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. Um, I'm uh, so pleased that we, we got to talk and I want to talk with you again. I want to hear more about the fungicides and the uh, the hormone and the growth inhibitors. Yeah. So thank you so much. All right. I'm Terry Oxford, and this is Pollinators and Power. Thanks for listening. <laughs>